We, we got these opportunities to travel and see the world and we're very inspired by the things we saw. And, and quite honestly, um, you know, bluegrass music is a, a wonderful tool uh, to, it's, a, it, it's the music we love, um, but you can't go to other countries and expect people to love it immediately. And we found out pretty quickly that um, if we took a little bit or a lot of time to learn some music from the places we were going, it made those trips so much better instantly and made us, the connections we made with people kind of instantaneous. We had folks from Korea and Slovakia and um, Ireland, Wales. Uh, it was fantastic and you don't always think of bluegrass being in those places, but there are pockets of our music really, literally around the globe. And it's really cool to see them in one place. We have so many friends on the road and I want them to be successful as much as I want to be successful. And that was Ben Wright with Stephen Motion in the middle, quoted from our conversation in Raleigh, North Carolina at the IBMAs in the fall of 2023. Stephen Motion is probably best known for playing guitar in the Sam Bush Band, while Ben Wright is the banjo player and a founding member of Hen House Prowlers. They are also partners in the music label Dark Shadow Recording. Those quotes set the tone for our conversation and point to their love of music as well as hint at the ever-present Catch-22 of the music business having to force the round peg of art into the square hole of commerce. Part of their solution to this age-old problem stems from knowing how bluegrass is, as Stephen Motion said in our interview, a participatory as well as a spectator sport, and diversifying one's skill sets while not having too many eggs in one basket. Another avenue of their success is building bridges across the world, from teaching music to serving as cultural ambassadors. And that outward-looking, open mindset exemplifies a path in bluegrass that contrasts with its more inward-looking and largely historical and regional focal points that once defined the genre. While they embrace that heritage, they also push forward on this newer, or perhaps simply rediscovered path that has led to new and wider audiences for their style of music, a path that began with Bill Monroe and continues with contemporaries like Molly Tuttle and Billy Strings. These are just a few of the things we touch on in our conversation coming up on this episode, which includes music from both the Henhouse Prowler's latest album, Lead and Iron, with its title track playing now, as well as Stephen Motion's solo album, Ordinary Soul. I'm Joe Kendrick, welcoming you to our episode on Stephen Motion and Ben Wright on Southern Songs and Stories.
Southern Songs and Stories is part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media. Osiris creates music podcasts and events to help music fans deepen their connection to the music they love with all of their shows at OsirisPod.com. Osiris works in partnership with Jam Bass, which connects music fans to the music they love and empowers them to go see live music. Capsule versions of Southern Songs and Stories are produced for broadcast on WNCW by me, Corey Askew. More information about this and other podcasts from Grassroots Radio, WNCW at WNCW.org. At the 2023 International Bluegrass Music Association Awards Ceremony, Dark Shadow recording artists Rick Ferris and Henhouse Prowlers enjoyed nominations for Song of the Year and New Artist of the Year, respectively. While Stephen Motion saw his band leader Sam Bush be inducted into the IBMA Hall of Fame. This was fresh on our minds when we spoke the following day, and we touch on that here, beginning with my question about their perspective on the business side of making music. Here's Ben Wright, followed by Stephen Motion. It's hard. Uh, I've been at it for 19 years, and... uh... You know, I I guess I think one of the best things that ever happened to me was that I remember the very first gig I played. It was at a coffee shop on the north side of Chicago, and uh, it was with this group of just musicians that I lived with. And uh, we played at this coffee shop, and I remember the guitar player, who was the de facto leader, handed me $20. And uh, I remember thinking, like, I'd made it because I made money playing music. And it was just like my mind exploded. And I held on to that as long as I possibly could, which was like, that's just simply making any money playing music is a miracle. Uh, and so, you know, it's obviously shifted after, ni- after 19 years, but it's kept my, real, my expectations realistic, I think, that, and because it is that hard. There's a, there's a lot of competition, and even the best musicians in the world, you get the wrong combination of people together and it's not tenable and they break, the band breaks up. Even though, you know, and uh, you know, the other thing I kind of uh, learned from was Greg Cahill, who was kind of my mentor for the early part of my musicianship, told me that, he's like, man, I've seen so many bands come and go that were better than me. And the only thing that I did was I stuck around. Uh, and uh, and I believe in that too. And I tell now I tell people that it's like, just hold on because the opportunities come if you can just hold on. And so many people go through a rough patch and they hang up their their instrument. And uh, and so I I think that's the I do think that's the number one thing you got to do is not quit yeah. uh, because eventually opportunities happen. And I remember walking these halls. 12 years ago when when IBMA moved here and feeling like I had no opportunities. Uh, and 12 years later, I can't walk the hall. We were talking when we got up here. I told Stephen, I was like, I can't walk over here from the ex- exhibit hall without someone stopping me and wanting to talk to me. And that's beautiful and wonderful thing because I've been here a lot around long enough for people to know who I am and want to talk to me, you know? And so... Uh, I think there's a lot of components to it. Uh, one one thing I have always kind of kept in mind, uh, sort of two big arching thoughts. One is to have realistic expectations of your financial means. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if you're going to have a, a career in bluegrass, you're probably not going to drive the, the latest sports car or own the most expensive house. Um, if, if you're lucky enough to do that, cool. Um, but a lot of the really wonderful musicians that I've seen sort of come and go from the scene got tired of, of not having what they wanted in a materialistic kind of way. And bluegrass money is, is sort of our internal joke, but it's a real thing. It's, it's a lower income sort of thing. Not, not, you know, I don't mean to sound derogatory because it's not that, uh, you can make a living doing this, but, but by having realistic expectations, I think it's, it's a lot easier. Uh, and, and two, uh, really diversifying your revenue streams, which is, I mean, just good policy in general. Um, but I don't really know many bluegrass musicians who just play the banjo. If they do, they're, they're the best ones and they're just so exceptional that that's enough. But even, I, I can't even think of one, honestly, because I'm, I'm thinking best banjo player. Well, Kristen Scott Benson won last night. I taught a, a bluegrass camp with her this summer at Rocky Grass, and she told me how slammed she is with lessons because she makes her living basically teaching banjo lessons and touring with the Grasskulls. It's, it's multiple revenue streams, and that's one of the things that I set out to do when I first moved to Nashville. I saw the successful and happier players doing multiple things and um, I come from a background of teaching and that's always been part of what I do teaching playing I play a couple different instruments I sing all the parts I'm a very employable bluegrass musician uh, and as an engineer a producer uh, band coaching the whole nine yards and then starting the label it's just all these avenues and the thought behind it is when something kind of drops off something else kind of picks up in its slack. And that was true until 2020. And then I realized all my eggs were in fact in the same basket. Um, I have a lot of eggs, but they all are, are all <laughs> in the same basket. But, um, other than that one thing, it's, it's been a good, a good deal for me. Um, and I encourage young folks that are getting into it to really think about the business of what they're doing. And it's, man, you don't get into this to be in business. You get into this to play Blue Ridge Cabin home. And uh, it's a different mentality. But you better learn. I mean, you better learn the business. You know, like that's the thing, like the, the people who don't treat it like a business end up fizzling out, I think, a lot sooner, you know. And, uh, and I agree with everything you just said. You know, I do. One of the things I, we teaching is a big part of bluegrass as a whole. But for us also as a band, I, I won't hire a new musician if they're not at least somewhat. Uh, interested in teaching because it's a big part of what we do um, but I also have this weird uh, thing about it or it's developed into this thing where uh, I'm not sure that I would still be doing this right now if I hadn't discovered um, like about 11 years ago the kind of the teaching slash cultural diplomacy stuff that we do and, and I, I think that uh, I love making music, I love playing the banjo, but there's this balance that is stricken when we do a educational program between that and playing a, a club. You know, I, there, 
I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I sometimes I over uh, overshare on these interviews. <laughs> I do, I do. But like sometimes it gets exhausting playing, especially in the fall, in the winter when you're playing clubs, and it's easy to get tired and look at it and realize, man, all these people they're buying tickets, yeah, but aren't we just selling alcohol here? You know, like how good does that feel? And but teaching is the ex just the exact opposite of that. And you no. Know, We've been playing, well, by the end of this week, we'll have played 15 showcases. Uh, and one of the very biggest highlights of this week was the hour we spent with the kids on Bluegrass Program. Because these kids were 9, 10, 11 years old and just, like, they thought it was the coolest thing that Ben from the Henhouse Prowler was sitting down with them. And, and they were just like, oh, my God. And I see them now walking around on the street and, and give them fist bumps. And they're just, like, delighted. And, you've, and I've made this connection with these kids. And all of a sudden, everything's cool. So I need more of that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, <clears throat> diversity in revenue, but also diversity in attention yeah it gets exhausting playing the same sh you know same songs you guys do a better job than anybody i know their catalog is ridiculous and they can play 10 shows and never duplicate a tune but it's the same catalog over and over and over again and yeah. that's what you hear from all your bands and of course your favorite bands you have your favorite songs and you're kind of mad if they don't play them <laughs> so those songs are in rotation a lot more and and if you get it's easy to get tired of that. It's easy to get worn out on something. Once you have done it hundreds of times in a row, uh, it's very easy to get worn out on that. And something I learned a long time ago, I'm, I'm good for about two weeks in any situation. Any more than that, I get a little twitchy. Uh, if I'm in the studio for two weeks, we're good. If I'm making a record as I'm in there, I'm sort of, I'm, you know, in the back of my mind, I get itching to play and then I get out on the road for a little while and I'm itching to teach and I'm itching to go back in the studio and, you know, songwrite or whatever. Each one of my avenues sort of feeds the other. And I think that kind of makes makes the whole thing work. But part of it is just because I have musical ADD and, <laughs> and I, I really I really want to move to something else. And, and that freshness re-energizes me for the rest of it and i think i see that in you guys when you do the bluegrass ambassadors thing you're in such a different mode that it feeds you into uh, more picking yeah it does it, it freshens up going back at the instrument you're like okay i'm ready to play play again because we just taught you know
From his debut solo album, Ordinary Soul, that's Steve in Motion with a bit of new beginnings on Southern Songs and Stories. Speaking of new beginnings, the bluegrass world is known for encouraging young people to join in and play, which I commented seemed rare in other genres. Here's Steve in Motion. Yeah, that's been a large component of bluegrass forever. Um, and, and I will say it does exist. I see it actually in the blues world, but it's a larger barrier to entry. You know, you've got to have the electric guitar. You've got to have the amp. You've got to have, you know, there's bluegrass is inherently better at this because all we got to do is show up and open the case, mm-hmm. right? Anybody can grab a guitar, learn three chords and participate in a jam session. Whether they're good or not is irrelevant. They, they can do it very quickly. And that is a really exciting thing for, for fans. And, and the other part of, about bluegrass is most of our fans are pickers. And that's a double-edged sword. It, it can also be challenging to encourage folks to come rather than sitting at their campsite and jamming all day. You know, we want to get them to come out to the shows and to buy the music and all that kind of stuff that feeds what we do. But it does change the scope of what bluegrass really looks like because the fan base are people who buy guitars and banjos and mandolins. They all play and they're aware of of the virtuistic things that that happen on stage. And that's cool. Um, I remember I was just reminiscing with a pal about the whole idea of mentorship. I know Sam Bush talked about his mentors in his Hall of Fame speech last night. And uh, the reason that I do most of what I do is because of the mentors that came before me. And I remember sitting, the uh, there was a band in New England called Southern Rail. We were at a festival somewhere. I was probably 10. And uh, there was some band playing and the guitar player from Southern Rail was out at the, the record t- table selling cassettes. <laughs> That's a, It was a couple of years ago. Um, uh, selling cassettes and he was just sitting there with his guitar kind of killing time waiting for their next set and we, we were very removed from the stage and I walked by and we'd, we'd, my family had seen that band a ton and they knew us. Uh, he said, hey, go get your guitars. So I went back to the campsite, got my guitar, and sat there. He showed me some things. We picked some tunes. And I was so little at the time, I had one of those squeezy capos, and I didn't have the power enough to squeeze it full enough to release it. And so I had kind of scratched the finish off the entire ne- back of the neck of my guitar using this thing. And, and uh, you know, we swapped guitars. It was the first time I saw a Callings guitar, which is now the brand I play mm. totally irrelevant, but, but amazing, but you know, cool, yeah. but cool. Right. And so we swapped guitars and when he saw the back of my neck, he just, he got horrified. He, <laughs> cause it was, it was terrible. I chewed the finish all off it. He gave me, um, a, a better capo that day. It was like a pro model capo that he handed me. I still have it. It's in my studio today. It's, it's always there. Um, and it's kind of a reminder of just taking a few minutes with somebody and sharing that spark. And I have the same story with Bill Monroe, believe it or not. I showed up at a festival, Peaceful Valley Bluegrass Festival in Shinhopple, New York. It was amazing. It was wild. We saw Osborne Brothers and Jim and Jesse and Bill Monroe and on and on and on. Bill Monroe was scheduled to do a um, mandolin workshop. And I had just gotten my mandolin, so I was probably 11, maybe 12. And this this festival was huge. So going back to the campsite after whatever we were doing was sort of not a thing. So I'd already 
brought my mandolin with me. My dad and I are there, and we go in this building early because that's the Mojin way. <laughs> We're early to everything. Yeah. Um, so we go in early, and all of a sudden, in walks Bill. There's three humans in the room. It's my dad, me, and Bill. And he looks at me and he says, oh, what have you got there? And so I just flopped my mandolin case. And this is a little Kentucky A-model mandolin, beginner, student model. And I didn't know anything, you know. And I just got it out of the case and handed it to him because that's what you do, right? And he played my mandolin for the entire workshop. And I have a photo of that day of me with him. And it was such a, such a huge moment, like, I understood at, at that moment that it wasn't the instrument, it was the human that was making music. And to learn that at 11 or 12 years old is massive. But that's that mentorship and, and really taking time with the youth to bring them up. It's a powerful thing. Our Kids on Bluegrass program here is amazing. My son is part of that for the first time this year, and he is having a blast. He's inspired to play. He's telling me about all these cool players. He's telling me about these neat solos that they've turned him on to from recorded things. And yeah. it's, it's great. It's great to see our, our community really fostering that. Huge props to Deanie Richardson and Kimber Ludiker for uh, fronting that program. Turning people onto bluegrass is, uh, is less barrier to entry than it has, ever has been because it's a very wide field. There's some very modern and, and uh, easy on the ears bluegrass. There's hardcore tradi traditional stuff that is modern. Um, and, you know, fans kind of fall in either or both categories. And so I know a lot of folks that have found Bill Monroe through Nickel Creek or the Punch Brothers even. Punch Brothers and then back to Nickel Creek and then over finally to Bill Monroe and, and so on and so forth. And then vice versa, finding modern bands because they were turned on to the sound of Ralph Stanley on Oh Brother or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really cool. And I would encourage folks, if they're interested, to to check out a local jam. There's jam scenes all over the country. And just type in bluegrass in your neighborhood and see, see what happens. Mm -hmm. See if there's anybody out there picking. And really, it is a... It is a participatory sport. It is not just a spectator sport. Yeah. And when you get a guitar in your hand and you step up and sing a chorus of something and someone joins you in harmony because they know the tune, it's a special thing that you get to share. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a cool community beyond that, but you can get into it right from the jam circle. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned Oh Brother and thinking about <clears throat> where we're at and and how things have been how bluegrass and uh, roots music like old time and bluegrass has benefited from that movie but you know say a generation or so before that what will the circle be unbroken and i think now it's billy strings that's no, got so many people interested in this mm -hmm. of course yeah it's wonderful to see what he's doing uh i mean just to point to Selling out in Nashville, selling out the Bridgestone Arena for two nights and then a night at the Ryman. And actually, they, you could only get a ticket to the Ryman if you'd bought a ticket to the Bridgestone Arena because it was that limited. I mean, they were all sold out. And he played bluegrass. I mean, there was Larry Sparks tunes on those set lists. There was Doc Watson tunes on those set lists. There was some New Grass Revival on those set lists. It, um, it feels a little different with Billy. Some of the artists that have been wildly successful have done it when they stepped out of the genre a little farther. 
uh, Alison Krauss comes to mind. Her biggest hits were things that were very country palatable or, um, you know, Americana-y and whatever. And I love it. I love it so much. Uh, it's so well done. Billy has found a way to do it by picking bluegrass. And he's doing the thing that everybody said couldn't be done. Right? That's, that's the remarkable thing for me. And there are thousands and thousands of people coming to his shows. Uh, the Entertainer of the Year photo that they showed at the, at the award show last night, it was a shot from the band on stage. The band had all turned around, so the audience was behind them. And the audience is a sea of humans. Mm. And they're all there hearing Jimmy Martin tunes and Larry Sparks tunes and some of Billy's new compositions, but it's all deeply, deeply rooted into the tradition of bluegrass. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's exciting, you know, and, and I, I think it bodes very well for the genre as a whole. From his 2016 album, Story Man, this is a song co-written with Stephen Motion, the instrumental It's Not What You Think by Sam Bush, putting a bow on this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We are grateful that you took the time to listen and hope you can help us by spreading awareness of what we're doing. It is as easy as telling a friend and following this podcast on your platform of choice, both of which are free. From there, it takes just a moment to give us a top rating and where it's an option, a review makes a great difference because the more top reviews and ratings we get, the more visible we become to everyone on those platforms, which means that more people just like you connect with artists like Henhouse Prowlers and Steven Motion and their music label Dark Shadow Recording, which is set to release Becky Buller's new song featuring Aoife O'Donovan titled Jubilee on February 23rd, ahead of her album of the same name coming in May. This series is a part of the lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media, with all the Osiris shows available at osirispod.com. You can also hear new episodes on Bluegrass Planet Radio at bluegrassplanetradio.com. Thanks to Corey Askew for producing the radio adaptations of this series on Public Radio WNCW, where we worked with Joshua Ming, who wrote and performed our theme songs. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories the music of the South, and the artists who make it.
to take up too much of your time, but in parting, if you want to take any one of the 20 questions and have some fun with that, I invite you to do so. Oh, boy. This is, this is an amazing list of questions. Wow. Wow. That is a... Uh, most, most messed up thing you've seen on tour. There's some of these I clearly don't want to answer. Right. <laughs> I had a, this, this is what I did at the Earl Scruggs Festival because yes. I didn't know who I would talk to, so I did 20 questions from a hat. And people skipped over a lot of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to tackle number one. Last time I checked, there, w- there, was a still bl- there, there was still a bluegrass police in force. Or is there? I think that notion is is a little outdated, honestly. I'm seeing more inclusivity everywhere, um, regardless of the brand of bluegrass people want to play. I think most of our community is happy folks are still playing bluegrass, however it's related. And, I mean, I play with the Sandbush Band, and we have our fair share of what we like to call chair snappers, you know, mm-hmm. the folks that will harumph and slam their chair closed and head off as soon as you get on stage. And, you know, that's true. nobody likes every style of music and that's okay. Baskin Robbins has 31 flavors. That's, that's Mm. what we do. And I think the whole bluegrass police notion is, is a little odd um, because who's to say they're the force. I think our fans are deciding that they want to hear whatever we're offering and not everyone is going to like every band on our label. Not everyone's going to like every song on every record and that's okay. It doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't seem to hurt anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, messed up thing you've seen on tour. I, I want to answer that question, but I'm trying to think of like something that. Uh, I mean, I've seen some. I've seen some fa- some fascinating things on tour. We've we've toured in places a lot of people don't get a chance to. You've toured in places a lot of people have never heard of. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the honest truth. Yeah. Um, you know, we did a trip once. Um, we were in Liberia, uh, which is West Africa, fascinating country. Um, it's where you might remember from, like, seventh grade history, there was this movement in the 1800s to, you know, uh, send the slaves back to Africa called it the Back to Africa Movement, and they put all these slaves on ships, and all those ships landed in what's now Liberia. Uh, and just it's, it's just a fascinating country with money that kind of looks like our money, except it's got Africans on it, and uh, the streets there, like the capital is Monrovia, named after the president at the time of that movement, Monroe. Uh, and, uh, and it's just a... A fascinating country that's had terrible, terrible, terrible things happen to it. They had this dictator named Charles Taylor who uh, was that you, you hear about African dictators uh, m- making children soldiers. He was, mm-hmm. that's what Charles Taylor did. So to, to go to that, that country and, and see that and feel that legacy was a powerful thing. We actually got to go to the, to the place where those ships in the 1800s went and docked. Uh, in the capital and just fascinating stuff and we took a uh, a trip up into the country 
which should have been like maybe a two-hour drive if um, if it wasn't for the roads being some of the most horrendous roads you've ever been on. And, uh, and I remember <laughs> remember a lot of things from that day. But uh, w we stayed at this hotel that night, and we pulled into the driveway, and uh, I realized, I got out of the car and realized that we had run over this giant scorpion, which was terrifying to see. I was like, oh my God, and there was no electricity in the hotel. And, uh, and that night we played this gig, and the power was going on and off, and there were these Boy Scouts that were there watching over us. Um, it was just, and apparently the Boy Scouts have a chapter in Liberia, and there were these young men dressed in Boy Scouts uniforms who were there to kind of protect us. And uh, we became really good friends with them. And uh, this isn't messed up. It was, it's just fascinating, you know? Like, it wasn't, nothing terrible happened or anything. It was just... It's kind of messed up. I mean, <laughs> and you know what's funny? We were in, the funny thing about it is it was in a Bong County, it was called. Uh, Bong, Bong County, Liberia, and when we were pulling into the city we were playing in, we passed by the Bong filling station, <laughs> <laughs> which you can imagine the band thought was the funniest thing we'd ever heard. Uh, and uh, just like that's a part of the world where they, they harvest rubber off of trees there, and you're driving through these ancient rubber plantations. Just really fascinating stuff. Uh, that's what came to my head when I read that. Most, you know, I so. love that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.